0: Please note that this episode covers topics like sexual abuse, sex trafficking, prostitution, and suicide. Thank you. Welcome to Grief Recovery Now podcast. I'm your host, Charlene Gorzella, your grief recovery specialist. This podcast is being produced just for you. Someone who has been challenged and heartbroken over a significant and devastating loss, death, divorce, sudden life change, or the many other ways we experience grief. You will be taken on a conversational journey with me and some special guests who have come out the other side of grief and committed to small, powerful, and courageous steps that made all the difference in their lives for the better. I want to instill in you on what is possible, that joy, hope, peace, and happiness is closer than you think. While your life is forever changed, You can have a beautiful new outlook on your relationships and loss with a sense of completion that goes deep in your soul. Ready, set, now. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. This is Charlene Gorzella, your host for the Grief Recovery Now podcast. So very, very grateful you're here today. We've got a great show today that I don't think is touched about too much in the grief world. So I brought the best of the best who's experienced it. (laughs) She's going to bring her experience, strength, and hope to all of us. And before I bring her on, I thought I would talk about a new segment of the show called Off the Cuff with Charlene. And in honor of our guest today, I want to talk about an experience I had in the 80s, 1980s. A lot of you listeners know that I have been in recovery for 34 years of drugs and alcohol. And during that time in my whoop de doo I call days, and my drugs and alcohol and all that, I was a product of the 70s. And at that time, people said, well, if you remember the 70s, you weren't there. And if you haven't taken drugs and alcohol, it means people who are in blackouts like me who drank and drug and woke up with their party hat on every day. It may sound like fun the way I'm talking about it, but in retrospect, it really was a fun time, but also very devastating when I realized that I was powerless over alcohol and drugs and my life became extremely unmanageable. And I could have died. I could have lost a limb. I could have been in a mental institution. I could have been in a jail or prison. I didn't. But I know I'm on this planet for a really powerful reason. And that is the path I went to get to where I am today. There was an experience of someone who was, I thought was a friend. And in the days of drugs and alcohol and all that, I was at this person's house who was always attracted to me, but I wasn't to him. And so I never wanted to sleep with him or anything like that. And if you know anything about the 70s and 80s, you know, it was like very free reeling. And I was never really that way. And so my friend, supposed friends, he just started giving me drugs and alcohol. And of course I took it and I was all gone for three days. He abused me sexually. He kept feeding me drugs. I was just out off the planet for three days. And I've even seen pictures that he took of me during that time. It wasn't anything naked or anything, but I look at them. I looked at my face, and I was just horrified of what I saw. And I didn't think about it for decades. And the reason why I'm bringing this up because I'm in the grief recovery business, and for my own experience, I didn't really. I worked with my grief, and I grieved and all that, but it wasn't done. I had unresolved issues. I had incomplete situations that stuck with me for a long time. And I was wondering why some things in my life just wasn't working. And later on, I, I what I learned is that I was walking through the filters of unresolved and incomplete grief. And that was one of them. I had talked to a friend of mine just in the last five years who was with me that I don't even remember, was in the situation with me. She went to the bathroom and called her uncle. He picked her up and she left me there. And she says, decades later, she will never leave a friend again. It stuck with her for years. And she finally told me that, as I said, I didn't even remember her being there because I was so out of it. So I can imagine that incomplete and unresolved grief that she walked through. So it just wasn't me walking through and having this experience. I think everyone goes through some type of grief that um, you just squelch. I hardly remembered it. And plus I took the responsibility. Well, I know I was a at that time, I didn't know, but I was an alcoholic addict. And where I wasn't like every day shooting heroin, I was a functioning person. I had a great job. I probably wore a four coat. I had a great apartment, very successful. But at night, you know, I didn't know when to say when. And I really had to deal with the loss of the unmanageability of my life. And I needed to be restored. And that's why I went through self 12 step program and other things that I've done to help resolve some things, but it wasn't done. And thank God, my friend came decades later, we talked about it, I sort of forgot about it. But I know why I was not getting as deep in friendships, especially with men and relationships because of that particular instant. And I had to deal with that and I had to work on it. And as I said many times, discovery is not recovery. So I had to dig deep about that. And the Me Too movement also opened things up for me. So anyway, so you're not alone if you've been through some situations that you blamed yourself for. And I'm not saying come from a victim place, but just looked at the facts. I also know he was under drugs and alcohol too. So is there forgiveness there? Absolutely. But I also had to know that it shattered my heart. There's extra crack in my heart because of it. I had some heartbreak there and then I had heart breakthroughs. And that's what grief recovery, this podcast is about, the work I do, the work Catherine, our guest does. So let's get on with this, my favorite portion of the, sh- of the podcast, which is introducing our guests. Catherine Ann Wilson. Catherine survived nearly 20 years of early childhood abuse, molestation, bullying, rape, a runaway from ages 12 to 17 years old, and sex trafficking. Almost 20 years of abuse and then 20 years of what Catherine calls surviving the surviving. Through tenacious self-help personal growth, and ongoing healing through many different kinds of healing modalities. Now nearly 20 years of a life that Catherine says has been beyond her wildest dreams. That is my favorite line, including earning a six-figure income as a national sales manager buying her dream home on a little lake in Maine. And I've seen that lake in Maine and all her ducks and goose and dogs and cats. It's beautiful. (laughs) You'll get her Facebook or one of her uh, links on that. Hopefully you'll get to see that too. Her personal pain was private and on a need to know basis. Most people didn't need to know. But in 2015, after volunteering on the girls unit at a local juvenile detention center, it became very apparent that she had the ability to help and she felt called to do so. So after discussing coming out publicly about her past with her husband and family, she started a 501c3 nonprofit called Stop Trafficking U.S. I'm going to say it again so you can write it down. Stop Trafficking U.S. for anybody who's involved or knows of somebody who'd like to be involved. This was born out of an inner calling to do everything she could to prevent other children from going through what she did. Over the last several years, Catherine has become a highly respected visionary, creating effective, efficient ways of educating as many as 690 individuals over the course of her three-day virtual trainings, where she brings in national experts and offers the highest and best education free of charge to all her participants. She also meets the needs like dentures, rent, education, etc. people who are affected by this. And it's out there more than you know. Catherine says there are a lot of ingredients to the recipe of a happy life, but none greater than the ingredient of hope. Catherine knows a lot about devastating loss and profound grief, years of panic attacks and anxiety. She also knows about overcoming forgiveness, generosity, being in service and hope. She knows a lot about hope. So help me w- welcome Catherine. Welcome Catherine.
1: Thank you, thank you. And thank oh, you for your here. Thank you for your share. That was that
0: was it that was a deep share. Thank you. And thank you for bringing that up because I don't talk about it much and if at all. Okay. So you're good with
1: her and I was wondering how you feel about him? Did you ever run into him again?
0: No, you know, I looked up and I think maybe, did I see him afterwards, me being in my blur of just like, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Because as you go through drug and alcoholism, blackouts and all that, you sort of, your mind has you forget about it and they squelch it. So, and plus I probably felt ashamed of it and it affected a new job. I had all kinds of things, but yes, I do have forgiveness for him because I know, as I said, I knew he was under the influence too. Would I be friends with him again? No. And I've tried to look for him, and I haven't seen him.
1: I wish him the best.
0: Meant, if it's meant to be,
1: your you know your paths will cross again. But I'm so proud of you for doing your healing work. I mean, that's the greatest gift you can give yourself is to be able to forgive him. Not you know not make it okay. It wasn't okay, but just to let it go. So I'm really I really
0: honor that in you. Oh, that's great, Catherine. Because I'm so glad you said about it's not forgiving the behavior. It's really for us. It's not condoning. So thank you for sharing that. And maybe we'll talk Well, hopefully we'll talk about a little later as you, what was it like? What happened and what it's like today? What it was
1: like for me on this planet so far, you know, I was born in love. I mean, my, my mom and dad loved each other. And I was conceived in love. I was born into a loving home shortly after Um, my mom and dad had my brother. And when they had my brother, he had uh, severe asthma. And back then, I'll be 58 next month, so back you know, in the sixties, they didn't have the medication they have now. And my brother was considered terminal. Uh, His first 10 Christmases uh, were spent in the IC unit uh, with, with asthma and them telling my mom and dad, Hey, come and spend time with your son. He's probably not going to make it through the night. So how offenders work and I'll use the word offender and the word predator sort of back and forth.
0: Okay. Um,
1: Same thing. uh, It's, it depends on your point of view some people really like offender and some people like predator so I just sort of do both okay so um so offenders are predators uh, who are looking for easy access so people who are inclined to sexually abuse a child they have to look for opportunity they have to put the odds in their favor you know there's all there's a lot to it and then there's a grooming process there's it's not just overnight. It's almost always somebody that the child knows and trusts. So for me, it was um, an administrator of my school. I was in first grade, elementary school. Most children, are, so one in five children are, are sexually abused before the age of 18. It's uh, one in six boys, one in four girls. So we just call it one in five children. That's across, that's just across the board. Wherever there are human beings, that is pretty much tried and true. Are children of color and vulnerable children abused at a higher rate? Yes, but not because of color. It is access. It is who can they have access to? Who is poor and needy? That doesn't matter. Boys, girls, just how can they how can they successfully get away with sexually abusing that child, right? Which is there. And that male or female's goal is to do that. So you look for like uh, in in Africa, uh, the hyenas are looking for that little giraffe who's just on the out of the circle, you know, out of where his, where everybody's at, that's who they go for. Well, my mom and dad were preoccupied with my brother, Totally understandable. Uh, the school administrator knew that would take me out of class and sexually abuse me in his office. And, and this so, was
0: your this was your school administrator?
1: Yes, in first grade. So, and there's there's a lot of conjecture, and I know that Harvard was trying was doing research to try to find out, but we don't really have a concrete answer right now. Why once someone has been sexually abused? Why is it normal that are, I don't know what the right word is, that they are sexually abused more than one time. So it's like kind of like blood in the water of sharks. So if you're a predator or an offender, there's just something about that child that's been sexually abused that like a neon sign. Right. Victim, victim. And then next thing you know, it's the babysitter and it's the friend of the family and it's your friend's stepfather. And you're doing as, you know, I would do a sleepover and somebody's dad would put their hand over my mouth and drag me out of the bunk bed into a hallway or a bathroom or something as a, as a child. So that was, that happened to me frequently. And so now I'm behaving differently at home. And there was red flags at the time. I mean, I was bedwetting, I was having night tears, but the pediatrician would tell my mom and dad, well, you have a sick child in the house. And this is, you know, sort of dismissed even in school when the administrator was calling me his special girl, which is now like a red flag term back then it it wasn't. So now I'm behaving differently at school. And so now the bullies are taking notice. And and you'd mentioned my chickens earlier. If there is a chicken who is vulnerable, who is sick, the other chickens try to peck that chicken to death to get rid of that chicken for the health of the flock, right? They don't want a sick chicken in the flock. So they are biologically inclined to kill that chicken. Same thing with parakeets. You see a bunch of parakeets killing one and I'm like, I'm in the pet store in horror, you know, why are they killing, you know, trying to, I want to like rescue the parakeet. And they said, well, because there's something wrong with that parakeet and the other parakeets know. So in school, it was like, it was like the kids must've known something because I was horrifically bullied in school, which drove me to start skipping school. So here I am um, breaking barriers. There's this little white middle-class girl. Um, who's born into love. Nobody. There's no alcoholic or drug addict parents. They're not divorced. We're not poor. All these things that we associate with being abused. It was just opportunity. And from that opportunity, the cause and effect, the snowball starts. Get abused. I get abused more. I'm behaving weird at school. The kids are, are bullying me. I'm skipping school. And next thing you know, I'm a, I'm a runaway from 12 to 17 years old. And the, the things that I saw, you kind of go from the frying pan into the fire, right? And mm-hmm. so now the abuse is way worse. Now it's being hogtied and, and raped and beaten and choked to unconsciousness and awful things. I had stopped my period. I just, I was so malnutritioned that, and I didn't use drugs or alcohol. I mean, I tried a couple drugs and alcohol, but they didn't affect me the way they affected other people. The good news, bad news, bad news is I remember every awful thing that was ever done to me. The good news is I didn't have any sort of addiction. You know, there was no drugs or alcohol um, addiction that I had to contend with. And then after I escaped and survived all that, I was unable to take any antidepressant or anti-anxiety. You know, Zoloft made my tongue swell. Something else gave me hives. Some just physically could not take it. So I had to learn how to deal with acute panic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and work work through that. But um, So from the 12 to 17, you know, I would call my mom and dad and say that I'm safe. I'd let them know that I was safe. Um, but at 15, I was lured into sex trafficking. A couple of girls living in an apartment. I'm eating out of dumpsters. I'm being beaten on a regular basis. I'm stealing food, stealing clothes, was arrested for stealing a towel, you know because oh. I wanted to take a shower in an apartment building I had broken into. So when those two girls were like, you know, we go on dates, we have boyfriends that may protect us. We have protectors. They're not saying prostitution, sex with strangers, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they fed me. They fed me macaroni and cheese with tuna fish. And they had me at macaroni and cheese and tuna. I mean, I was so hungry that mm. when they fed me, it was almost euphoria when the, when it hit my, my blood sugar. When it hit my bloodstream, it was just like, oh. and I'm like, okay whatever I can have my own apartment. I can have my own clothes. I can have shelter and food and right. And, and I'm being, I'm doing survival sex anyway. So, okay. There's just, there's a subculture. So I'm sure that you and your followers have belonged to clubs before uh, or maybe you're Catholic or you're Jewish or something that's more of a lifestyle. And there's in that lifestyle, well, the, the, um, the 12-step program, yeah. you know, there are just things that you guys know to say, Hey, are you a friend of Bill W? Hey, big book, 12-step, don't do a 13th step inside things that nobody else would know, right. but you, right? Mm-hmm. So in the world of prostitution, there's also a subculture And there's a whole set of rules and the ways of being and doing and what you can say and what you can't say. And once I said, okay, and then I got to um, choose between two pimps, the boyfriends came over, two men, a white guy and a a man of color. And And the man of color was charming and beautiful and gregarious and the, and the white guy looked weird. He had thick glasses. He had a pencil mustache and a pocket protector. Like he was weird. But for some reason I chose uh, the white guy and there's just so, so many crossroads from birth to this age right now. Well, from, I don't know, whenever I could make choices to, to the age I am now where God intervened. I choose to believe that God intervened and uh, the God of my understanding. And this was one of them. I had no way of knowing. I had no idea that the man of color was a seasoned pimp, was, brut- was brutal, broke bones, was mm-hmm. participated, created bestiality, pornography. Oh my God. That there were uh, there was a network of houses all over the United States. One that he used was in Lowell, Massachusetts, for the most disgusting, awful things you can imagine. And that he regularly broke the bones of his girls, not not never messing with the face, but other things. And why I chose the other guy, God job, but I did. And he was a pimp wannabe. He only had a few girls. He was learning, and so everybody is. Controlled in different ways. Some people are control are controlled through love. They they romance you, and if you loved me, I need this this record made of my music. Once I get my break, if you would just have sex to make money to do this, I'll be forever grateful. And you know we'll be on MTV together or whatever. Or fear: if you don't do this, I'm going to kill your parents or your pet or whatever it is that you really love uh for me it was fear my pimp used fear if you don't do what i say then you're going to disappear you're going to go to lowell massachusetts was the big one death was considered a relief to me worse than death was going to lowell massachusetts so that was sort of the the control factor for me And I was 15 years old. I believed that this guy was the devil and that some evil presence and that he somehow would know if I wasn't where he told me to be. He would find out. I felt like he had eyes everywhere and he did things to make that point. He did different things to instill in me uh, that what he was saying was true and that my life was Uh, in, in danger. So he would set up a date for me. I would go to this very nice hotel where I live in Maine and there'd be other girls were supposed to show up. There were five men who were supposed to be hunting. They told their wives they were on a hunting trip and they were buying prostitutes. And I was the only girl that showed up. And the five men didn't care, right? And so then how the Johns behave, the John is the guy buying sex. Mm -hmm. So I'm probably younger than their daughters, right? And so they want me to convince them that this is something that I want to do and that I'm not in trouble. I don't need help. And that they are just so darn attractive that I'm just, I'm a nymphomaniac and I just can't wait to have, to have sex with those stinky, you know, ugly looking men, which is what every John wants you to think. They don't want to think that they're sexually abusing a child. They want to think that even though it makes no sense, who in the world wants to have sex with somebody that's mean, that bites you, that hits you, that smells How did you put on that Academy Award winning type of fear? The same thing the other people did. So when one of them was biting through my skin Mm. and the other one saw what he was doing, he made him stop. But I couldn't be like a normal girl who would say, oh my gosh, what are you doing? Stop doing that. You know, and I leave or something. I, I am forced to be there. Satan is waiting for me. And if I don't do what I'm supposed to do the way I'm supposed to do it, then a fate worse than death is going to wait for me. So that level of terror is right there.
0: You yeah. are so on high alert. You are like, on hi- high like alert. Your nervous system must have been shot as a young girl. Oh, yeah, The loss of identity, the loss. Okay. Horrible. Tell us something else. And then let's go on to what happened. How did you finally break through? So, so, it, so when, when you think your life is
1: in danger, right? So we see on TV, CSI, where somebody has a gun to their head or a bad guy has taken them away and they're hysterically crying and please don't hurt. That wasn't my experience. My experience was game face You know, you do what you need to do. So even in the throes of rape, so two pimps come over. um, I broke one of the underground rules, which is don't let them in. I said, Peter isn't here. He'll be here soon. Come in. I was in my pajamas. It was late. I wasn't thinking. And as soon as I said, come in, they looked at me like a Cheshire cat, like, you just fucked up. And I went, oh shit, I just fucked up. And they just shoved me through the door, threw me down and took turns. And while they're raping me, I'm thinking, is Peter going to be mad at me? Um, What's going to happen to me? Am I going to go to Lowell? Don't fight them. I'm five feet, uh, 115 pounds right now. Back then I was 85, 90 pounds. So if I fight them, they're going to hurt me. So in the moment, while you're being attacked, you have to figure out how to get less body injury as possible while I'm thinking. And so like a normal person might think, scream, scream for help, call 911. Well, I didn't call 911 because Peter had trained me that the police were the enemy, right? So one time, uh, so remember, I told you that I would call my mom and dad and say, I'm okay. Well, when I'm held prisoner, there's no calling mom and dad. So somebody put out, uh, back then, they didn't have Amber alerts or missing person. If you were missing, then they would uh, just do a warrant. So that would flag, you know, your if your name came up with the police, they would know that something was wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So Peter came and said, hey, the police have a warrant for your arrest because I'm missing, right? And so he, my pimp brings me to the police station, <laughs> right? Really? I go into the police station and I tell, go into the office of, wasn't even like, at the reception looking desk. Look, when you walk it like to a police station into somebody's office, here I am. And my pimp is right there. And why did he bring you into police station? My cat was like meowing. I missed. There's a warrant for my oh, arrest. Or a
0: warrant. And I, how was
1: he- missing. I was missing. Right.
0: Got so, that.
1: so he knew, so he's convincing me that, he knows all. I didn't even ask how he knew. Of course he knew. Police are the enemy. Right. So of course they told him. Of course he knew. And now he's bringing me to the police station and the and the police officer didn't say, "Who's that guy?" or "Are you okay?" or anything like that. And then Peter walks me out. So these are all the things that embed in me there is no safe person there isn't so what i'm going to tell you next the what happened is hopefully i have instilled the level of terror that i was living in and how i felt at the time so this next part will you'll understand the miracle of it so i want to die but i, I don't know if hell is real and if i commit suicide will i go to this place called hell and it, will it be worse than the life that I'm living? Will it be worse than Lowell, Massachusetts? What about this thing called karma and reincarnation? Is that real? So these are unknowns. So if I kill myself, will I be reincarnated into a worse life than what I'm in now? Mm.
0: That was going so through your
1: mind as a young ab- person? Oh, absolutely. I mean, because I, I was serious about killing myself. And I'm thinking this through because that's permanent. So I go outside and I'm like, okay, if you are real, God, um, if, you, if you're if you real, here's the deal. I And I said that out loud about reincarnation in hell. And I'm talking to the trees in the backyard. And I'm like, I, if you're real, help me because I do not want to live. Please take me out. I don't want to kill myself because of this stuff but I'm done. I am done with, with being alive somewhere. So the house where he kept me had a woman living there that watched over me and the other people. Right. So I'm under guard all the time. Peter lives somewhere else with his wife and children in a nice neighborhood. Right? Is
0: that the way it goes? I watch right? a lot of S uh, Law and Order SVU.
1: Right, right. So I walk out the front door, and every step that I took away from the house increased my odds of going to Lowell, Massachusetts. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm thinking, okay, if he pulls in, I can say, and I'm thinking of stuff. But, uh, and the houses were like a country mile apart where I was staying. So, the further away the more danger i'm in my pace picks up and then the first house that i come to is on my left and i knock on this stranger house and this woman goes to open the door it was just barely a crack as she's going to say hello you know may i help you and i shove the door run in and she what's happening and you'll 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 appreciate this this woman, the next day, was scheduled to go to a halfway house for women. For It's a 30-day treatment program called Crossroads for Women for Alcoholic Women. Wow. Now, why didn't she call the police? I don't know. Um, wasn't even thinking about that at the, at the time. All I thought of was, Peter's going to find me and I'm going to die, right? But she called the rehab and said, Hey, I'm supposed to be there in the morning, and some crazy child just r- ran through my door. What do I do? And they said, Bring her. Aww. So um I went underneath her, one of her beds um, in her guest room and wide awake all night. And sure enough, there there, there was a, a manhunt for me that night. Somebody was shot in their effort to, um, bring back their moneymaker. Uh, the next morning I was able, they put the car caddy corner to the front door and I got into the floorboard. I fit like a cat knew
0: where you were.
1: The no, car- they didn't know where I was. They went, they did a search for me. Somebody was shot. They didn't go to that house. They didn't even think to go to that house.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, they bring me to crossroads for women and crossroads for women is a 30 day treatment for alcoholic women. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not 18, you know, but they allowed me to stay there for 3 months. I was 16 at that point. And they allowed me to stay there for for 3 months. It was a, it was amazing. And then I was supposed to go to a um, a place called Day 1, which is a year-long program for children. And the children who are staying there vote if you can stay there or not. And uh, anyway, the, the, we came to, we negotiated, I could stay there. And so I'm at crossroads watching TV with the ladies the next morning. I'm supposed to go to day one and I get a call from my father and he said, um, I love you. I need you. Please come home. Now my dad would say something like that before. So that wasn't new or alarming or anything. They did not know about crossroads excuse me, they didn't know about day one. They didn't know where I was going. They didn't know anything. He just happened to call God job at that particular time. And then I had this, this sense of kind of like those old black and white movies where you hear the world war II siren. Mm -hmm. Like I felt this uh, emergency feeling, get to your dad, get to your dad, get to your dad, get to your dad kind of thing. And I went to the night nurse and I'm like, I, I'm in Maine. I got to get to West Palm Beach, Florida, where my dad is. I need to get there. And so she called the the person on call and said, what do I do? And they said, don't help her. Don't stop her. Um, The thing about day one is you're not allowed outside contact for three months, 90 days. You can't go to the, you can't walk to the post box. No outside contact, no phone calls coming in, coming out, nothing. They want to just like Give you 90 days, right? Mm -hmm. Um, My dad died 90 days later. So, that time that I went to Florida, I got to have time with my dad before he passed. And being with him when he passed away, I had a spiritual event happen while my dad was dying that someday I'll tell you about. It was remarkable. And that spiritual event became the mooring. That would keep me alive and on this planet for what was going to happen for the next 20 years of my life, which is surviving the surviving. How do you heal? So, all of that stuff that had happened, now that I'm safe, now I I have to feel and heal from all of that trauma without being able to take any medication. Yes. Night tears, off just unbelievable you were raw
0: like yeah. raw as anything can be
1: took a lot of different kinds of therapies and i didn't believe i was a victim when my dad died i was 17 and i i did not believe that i was i wanted my panic attacks to stop but i didn't believe i was a victim i believed that i was a whore and that through the blood of jesus christ i was i was made new i'm over it why don't you and my group get over it, (laughs) right? And they were like, you are a victim, you know? And it wasn't until I was 25 before I realized that, hey, I didn't have pubic hair when this was happening. This wasn't a choice. I was a victim. And then all of a sudden, you know, when I was ready to accept that I was a victim, all of a sudden everything's coming in. And that's when the, you know, the deeper therapy began. So I was working on panic attacks and just trying to get through the day. And then it was, wow. But I had learned at Crossroads that the 12-step program could help anybody. Yep. And the only requirement for membership was a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees. <laughs> wow. I was like, she knows what she's talking about. I do. Like, You're not an alcoholic, addict.
0: Right? Yeah. So yeah. I
1: would, I would go to 12 step and I would just say, hi, I'm Catherine. I'm an addict. Yeah. And there's a book out called 12 steps for everyone. I wish the whole world had it. I wish the whole world would go. I think the world would be better if everybody went. And so I didn't lie about my life because my life story was certainly horrific. I just didn't talk about what I consumed. And I just said, I was, I was an addict. And I went to meetings when my dad died and I live with my mom. She tried to put me in regular school. I started skipping school, junior high school. I mean, I I didn't go to high school, you know, I didn't know how to fit in. I had 12 to 17, I was on the street. I didn't know how to I had, you know, a tattoo here. I had a tattoo here, and I cuss like a sailor, smoke like a sailor, look like something your cat threw up on a bad day. I couldn't go to school. And so I started going to 12 step meetings. And that's what I would do with my, with my time. And then I met a really nice guy who had been sober a year. Again, I'm 17 and he started taking me to meetings. I didn't have a car. And then I thanked him the way I knew how now mind you the whole time I'm on the street, I'm on, not on any kind of birth control. And maybe somebody used a condom, maybe somebody didn't, but I never got pregnant or caught any sexually transmitted diseases unbelievable. Wow. Um, But I bring this guy from, from the 12 step group and I put a condom on him and the condom broke and I got pregnant. So my dad died. I moved from Maine to Kansas. I'm going to meetings. I have sex with this guy. I get pregnant and we get married within three months. So dad died August 9th. I was married December 26th. Wow. So two kids and then cancer immediate. My daughter was um, a year old when I got cervical cancer from all of the sexual partners. Yeah. So we talk about HPV now, but back then it was a, a new thing. And I got cancer of the cervix, not the the socially acceptable kind, save the tatas, right? Um, but I got the unacceptable, the shame cervix and uh, had a hysterectomy. And while I was married to him that eight years was and was a lot of therapy because I my why, as Tony Robbins talks about, right. was to be a good mom. I wanted to stay alive and I wanted to be the best Christian mother and wife I possibly could be and be everything that I didn't have. And so I studied. Um, how to be a good person. I didn't know. I had to learn everything. I didn't know interpersonal communication skills, conflict resolution. How long do you shake somebody's hand before you give them the wrong idea? Boundaries, eye contact, like how long do you hug somebody? Like the I had to get up to zero where everybody else was, right? Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. And then You know, and I'm sure trying to have sex with somebody who has a flashback falls over on the, you know, in the corner of the room having a full blown um, episode, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Isn't
1: isn't fun? And so he found another woman at at the eight year mark. We got divorced, and I went on. I had no job skills other than. So, uh, so I had to, I cleaned people's houses and I picked up dog poop in backyard and I got my GED. And by the time I was I was in my early 30s, I was making a six figure income as a national salesperson. I was making twelve thousand dollars a month, and that was commission only because the two owners of the company that I worked for, one guy said, "She's white trash. I'm not gonna like." pay her expenses or give her a salary. And the other guy's like, give her a chance. She's got talent. Give her a chance. And he said, you want to give her a chance? Commission. That's it. And then I I went on and I'm listening to Tony Robbins tapes and I'm learning how to be a human being. And I made a six-figure income and I'm not telling anybody about my past or it was a need to know. Nobody needed to know. I did so much therapy. It takes so long. Did the Hoffman Institute. I did landmark education, uh, Ram Dass. I've I've seen Wayne Dyer 12 times, Marianne Williamson. Back in the eighties though, it was just self-help healing the child within like group therapy, individual therapy, energy therapy, breath work, like everything, EMDR, (laughs) like tap, like every sort of crazy thing possible. And then at forty, I bought my dream house in Maine, five feet off of a lake, and um, decided to retire from the job because I was never—I was on the road three three weeks a month. And I met my my second husband when I was forty-seven, and uh, moved to a bigger lake. And then I'm vo- I've always done volunteer work, but I started volunteering at um, a juvenile detention center on the girls' unit, and. I'm listening to them tell me a similar story to mine. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. What happened to me 35 years ago is happening to you, 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 like every freaking girl in my group. I'm just like, do people know what's happening? Right. I mean, it just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, word, word, sort of went through the legal system about the work that I was doing and the success I was having with the girls. And they asked if I would be on, you know, the local six o'clock news, right? My friends don't know my whole story and they want me on the six o'clock news. So I'm like, let me talk to my kids who are adults. Let me talk to my two children and my husband.
0: <laughs> Your children <laughs> know, right? Do they? Oh, know? yes. Oh, yeah. you were open yeah. with that with them. Oh, and, yeah. And well, yeah. People, excuse me for one second. Yeah. If people or are, are some of our listeners are going through a time that is similar to Catherine or something like it or the same thing, please know recovery takes some time. You have to take simple, powerful steps. Know that you don't know and you have to unlearn to learn. And people, I believe, are here to remind us who we truly are. Whether you look nowadays, Google is free. You can listen to Tony Robbins online. You can listen to Catherine online. You can listen to me online. You can listen to so many people. Ram Das, there's so many wonderful teachers who care, who's been through the depths, devastation, abuse. And even though if you don't think that you can relate to Catherine, but if you're in a time where you're like, you want, just want to give up. You're raw with emotions, and you don't know what to do. I always say, don't marinate in your knowledge up in your head, because we marinate in our knowledge, and nothing changes. So please, what she did was show up, even if you were scared out of your mind. Right, Catherine? What I what I would say. At this juncture is, you know,
1: Michael Singer has a great book called The Untethered Soul. Oh, I love that book. I use that with the girls on the girls unit. So what happens sometimes, well, people will hear my story and they feel guilty because they had a far less traumatic thing happen to them, but yet they have a profound impact. So as particularly as women, we need to stop comparing, right? Yes. It's It's not... my father kind of went nuts before the cancer and my dad asking me for oral sex was far more traumatic than being tied down and raped by a crazy person for hours. Okay. It isn't what happened. It is your response to it. So if you are, if it affected you in a traumatic way, then there are things that you can, you can do. The first thing is, is letting go of that. Second thing is listening to some Byron Katie. So, you know, so her, um, website is the work that And she's Byron B Y R O N. Right. But it, her website's the, the work and being able to let go of your story about, Oh, I shouldn't feel this way, or I shouldn't compare. Blah 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 blah. Let let that go, and you don't have to go digging for trauma. When it is like I said, I didn't feel like I was a victim until I was like 25. Before I went, wow, right? So you don't have to dig for that. It will come up, and so when it does, and. An overreaction is a, you know, uh, different things. And when you have that, you can go, hmm, you know, just get curious about it. But the untethered soul, uh, and he also wrote the ex- uh, Surrender Experiment, that's a, like, what do you do with the wounds, right? Well, what you do with the wounds is you give them space to uh, to reveal it. Wow, I'm you know, this is coming up for me. I'm having this bad dream. I had this flashback. I had this memory. Okay, how does it make you feel? And giving it space to feel. And then also with boundaries, say, okay, I'm gonna give myself this amount of time to, to think about this and feel. Now, is it okay for me to finish grocery shopping? Is it okay for me to you know, start my car and continue to drive? And, and then make that, make a commitment to yourself that you're going to talk to whoever the right person, the best and safe person for you is. With that, I'll tell you that there's a guy named Terry Real, and I think it's called the And Terry Real, a 12-step guy, very cool guy, he he trains therapists all over the world I totally trust him and I've sent many people to his website. You put in your zip code and he'll tell you who has been trained in this trauma trained methodology. I don't believe in going to a one hour for 18 years, right? It's just like, let's let's be efficient with our healing because it takes so darn long. And you, you're gonna get a good therapist if you get someone trained a therapist who's been trained in that. And there's EMDR and there's tapping. If you've done a lot of work, but you still have a little anxiety and you don't want to take a Xanax, um, then tapping EFT, the tapping solution has an app on your phone. Oh my gosh, it really does calm your nervous system down. So you can think there's tons of tools out there,
0: tons of tools out there. Yeah, so some of the thing, EMFT, it is. EMFT, just write it down and Google it. And some of these other names, and you'll explore sometimes it's like, what am I feeling? Write down what you're feeling. How can I get help? 12-step right. is great. There's so many sub, uh, support groups. And right. the peer-to-peer model is the one where I remember I would listen to people and go, oh my God, that's how I was feeling. I would have never identified that until I heard it from someone else. Right. So we all are here to remind each other. Yes. And it doesn't happen. You don't go from zero to 90. Right, It takes time and you're going to skin your knee. You're going to meet people that will disappoint you either through a filter of yours or they're not safe. It doesn't mean you give up. Right. You just go on to the next, open another door, open to another healing modality. There's so much, we're so lucky we live in this time.
1: Right. And, and there are so many um, EMDRs, wonderful for trauma. Uh, Tony Robbins just released a new book um, just this past 30 days called Life Force Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's the, the latest study that's been done for panic and anxiety and depression, like the the state of the art latest stuff. It's just stuff that your doctor's probably not going to tell you about because they're all about, you know, being, being, being sick. Um, And now we're, we're really turning that tide and thinking about, you know, how can we be healthy? And there's so much out there. Tony Robbins is just you know, is amazing. He's helped me since the eighties. I, I love that being in relationship again. And yeah, why, tell me, us
0: about that.
1: Having some people say, how can you believe in God? Like what kind of God would let awful things happen? And, you know, I believe in the power of pretending. I love the power of pretending. That's a sort of my go-to thing. And really looking at my stories and going, okay, is this story uh, bringing me joy and happiness <laughs> or is it keeping me stuck in, in fear? Am I open to the world or am I constricted in the world? And it's a fine balance of using that and also going with your gut. I think the thing that there's a new book out called Attached, Ugh love that book attached, particularly if you've gone through any trauma, like you, what you went through, it's like, how can you be, you said you had some walls with men because of what you had gone through. Totally understandable. So learning how to be relational, whatever it is that you want in your life, you can educate yourself so that you can learn how to be functional in that area. I had a lot to learn in the area of relationships. My, my parents did the best they could, but they did not protect me from being such a young age and abused during those really critical time. So some people are love avoidant. Some people are love addicted when they've gone through a lot of trauma. And then there's the really screwed up ones who are both <laughs> Pia Melody's like, you're with me, Catherine, you got both. So Mm -hmm. that's a, so you have to do a lot of, a lot of education. So for me, I believe that the most important thing that we can educate ourselves on is how to be relational, how to be compassionate and forgiving, how to have boundaries, right? It's so important. The stories that we make up about things and purposely changing our story to one that serves us instead of one that keeps us stuck in, in fear and trusting your gut too. I mean, you, if something's not right and your brain says, something's not right, you know, go with that gut feeling. You're going to be right. I mean, think about it. No matter how old you are, when your gut said something, how often were you right? So if the odds are that you're usually right, you can, you can bet in that favor, and go with, go with your own gut on that. I have a wonderful relationship. I've been with my husband 12 years now, and we have an amazing relationship. And I had to uh, ask myself and challenge myself about the stories that I make up. My husband does not buy me a birthday present. He forgets Christmas. He leaves the toilet seat up. I mean, there's like all this stuff, right? And I could say, oh my gosh, he doesn't love me. Like, have a story about what love should look like. Mm-hmm. So, when I stopped doing that and I say, look at the way he loves me, he put together this makeshift bed. So, at the end of our dock in Maine, I call it the Cabana of Love. He just took old junk wood that he had around and made a bed frame so I could drag my mattress out and sleep at the end of the dock. And then he hand carved all these hearts and painted them red. And he puts that on my little she shed, on my Cabana of Love. So, he doesn't remember my birthday but he does all this other amazing stuff. So it's sort of like, well, what am I, what am I focusing on? Focus on, on how the universe does show up for me. So I don't have a healthy mommy and daddy, right? Um, I don't have whatever you don't have. Well, how is the universe providing that, right? So I am mothered in so many ways with the beautiful women relationships that I have. I am sistered by so many beautiful relationships that I have. Instead of going, well, what don't I have? I look at everything that I do have because fear and panic and depression can't exist. Darkness can't exist in the light. And light is gratitude and appreciation and being in service to others with boundaries that just illuminate your life and bring joy to your life. That's I wake up happy every day, and I see some survivors who are still living in the world owes me. I'm not going to be better until he or she pays, and I'm just like, man, there's no. I didn't get. There's this Netflix called um, Unbelievable, and they do a great job of showing what it's like to be a victim and what post traumatic looks like. They do an excellent job, but at the end, she gets an apology and a check, and. Like, that isn't real, right? Most of us are not going to get an apology and a check. And my happiness and your happiness, the ability to thrive, right, and have an amazing life is not contingent upon anybody else, not a check, not justice, not somebody paying, not an apology. It is only your decision to be happy in life, even if there are some changes that need to be made. Be happy and grateful and appreciative where you are. Look how you can serve others while you're taking the action steps to create an even better life than you have now. And it continues to evolve and get better over time.
0: Yeah, and it takes courage and it takes not knowing. It takes all kinds of feelings. It's not gonna happen overnight. Some things will come fast if you're in some form of recovery and listening to people like Catherine her story how she talked maybe 40 minutes right now all this didn't her whole life didn't change in 40 minutes it took a while and i'm not saying some people sometimes quickly sometimes slowly but i'm sure you had increments of all of a sudden seeing the the beauty of like oh i think i got it i have this touch of happiness in my life well, so in my life right
1: now i'm i'm on a i'm in florida and the gulf is right over there. So sometimes this whole thing is so locked in with fog that you can't see the boat. Mm. And what healing looks like is slowly you can see the boat, Mm -hmm. right? Slowly it lifts. So how you know you're healing is what used to Um, really affect you. Like what used to send you over the edge. You used to like, let's say you, you were triggered to a, to a 10. Uh, Now you're triggered to an eight and then you're triggered to a five and then you're triggered to a three. And then one day you're like, oh my gosh, I went by that and I had no trigger. So for me, one of the things my pimp had me do during the day was during the holiday we had in the basement had to make Christmas wreaths. So before Thanksgiving, even uh, at least here in the United States, there's Christmas wreaths up in front of every single grocery store, like right away. And it used to be, sometimes I couldn't walk past them to go into the grocery store. I would Mm. just, you know, like, oh my God, right. The smell of them would catch me. And now I know what I did with those Christmas wreaths. I, I know what happened. I also know how they are used to decorate homes with little kids playing, great anticipation of getting presents, and it's a beautiful thing. You reframed it, I, I, yeah. And I and I'm and I'm I'm healed. And and how you know you're healed is when you're not, um, when that level is less and less and less, and that happens in its own time. And some some of the triggers might heal really quickly and some of them less again michael um michael singer's book untethered soul goes into a lot about that he calls those wounds splinters and they they will be removed one by one by one and it does take as long as it takes but if you had to do a lot of healing work for 5 years or 10 years, but you had 30 years of just an incredible life beyond your dreams. Would that time have been worth it to you? No fun in the moment, but oh my gosh, you're doing it for what's going to happen. And the generational effect too. My healing, I was sexually abused less than my mom. My daughter uh, was sexually abused F- f- way, way less, um, no penetration, um, on her. And now my granddaughter is 15 and she's the first female in my mom's side of the family. Who's made it to 15 without any sexual assault whatsoever. Bravo. You, do your, you do your work, not just for you, but for the generational effect that trauma can leave that generational dysfunction is real. Mm-hmm. So if you can't do it for you, do it for your family.
0: Yes. And then eventually you'll do it for you. That's my dream for you. Now, Catherine, our time is over, but hey. you know, we've gone a little over, which is fine with me because your story is important and you're experience, sharing your experience, strength and hope. Can you tell how did you, did you, were you able to forgive your father, the school administrator? We talked about not condoning uh, absolutely.
1: I'll try to be really short with my dad's story, but um, my dad was um, in the hospital uh, dying of malignant melanoma. He was supposed to die three days before he did. Remember, I got that call and I rushed <laughs> down. And um, so I got to sit beside my dad while he was dying and I, I fell asleep on his hand. And when I fell asleep on his hand, I felt as if somebody physically shook me awake. And I woke up with a jolt, you know, I mean a jolt. And I'm like, "What's happening here?" And I look over at my dad and I felt a presence in the room with us. It was a private room, but I felt like some, somebody, you know, when I was 17, I wasn't raised in a church. So I don't know, it was God, Jesus, I don't know, an angel. I didn't see anybody, but I felt the presence of somebody. And I had been praying that God would let my dad die when I fell asleep. And now I'm awake and I'm watching him breathe in, breathe out. I feel like there's something in the room. I look at my dad, he breathes in, he breathes out. And then for a lack of the better words, I felt him leave his body and go over to that, where that other presence was. And I felt like there was two people my dad and somebody else there and in my imagination i said thank you for taking my dad to whoever that invisible person was and to my dad i said i'm sorry i was such a bad kid and i felt my dad say that he loved me and that he was sorry and then they were gone and then i look like is this shit really happening i'm looking at my dad there's no breath And it was that moment that I knew that he knew everything. When somebody is dead, they get it. They know all the sides of every story and they couldn't possibly feel worse or be more sorry than they were once they're on the other side. And I believe we can still talk to them. But having that experience at such a young age of like, really, somebody was in that room. Knowing that there's more to the story than just what we see, mm. call it, I don't care what higher power, God, Buddha, whatever. Um, there's something we're not alone. There is a spiritual presence and we, and we can connect to that and get the the hope and help that we need and have the connection. If we just, just ask and as simple as help. Yes. So it was, so I totally forgave him. Absolutely. Absolute
0: forgiveness. Yeah, and you asked his forgiveness too, right? And yes. what we do at um, the grief recovery method, we talk about what you go through is like forgive, which means not condoning apologies, and you don't need to say it to the person because sometimes you'll cause more harm than good, right? And remembering and it, significant events. Yeah. So you go through these nicks and crannies, and it's all for you, and right. and then turned when you're ready. You'll you'll serve others in such a joy like you do. Um, We're going to end here, but let's talk about on the podcast. We'll have your links on there that you so generously gave us. Thank you. Next time we talk, let's talk about the girls and the guys that you work with. Ah, easy. Be open to that. Of course. Okay. And maybe hear some of their stories that you could share with us and how they've walked through through the time you met them to today. That would be so yeah. powerful. And you're a powerful presence on this planet, Catherine. Thank you so Thank you. much. And I everyone who's the listened, opportunity. Oh, our total pleasure. And our listeners, I hope you got something out of it. I know I did. And so share it with your friends. We're we have a movement here of grief recovery and So much more, but get through some of the, because we're walking through grief, the filters of grief and trauma and PTSD and all that. And I hate to label all this stuff, but I want to get the point across. You don't know the filters you're walking through, share it with others, find a peer-to-peer support group. There's so many of them. It's just not the 12 steps. And that are religious, not religious, Buddhist, gay, straight, LGBT, anything you can think of. So we're here for you. And we'll <laughs> see you next time. Peace and love and harmony, everybody. Peace and love and harmony. Okay, bye, Catherine. Bye. Thank you for joining our Grief Recovery Now journey. Like what you heard? It would be the biggest compliment to our mission if you would please subscribe, rate, and review Grief Recovery Now on Apple Podcasts, and we'll keep you posted on our next podcasts. If you don't have Apple, we are also on Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Also, please join our private Facebook group, Grief Recovery Now, and if you are in need of any personal attention, please contact me with the link on this podcast page, which is griefrecoverymethod.com forward slash g r m s forward slash charlene dash gorzella it would be an honor to hear from you